15 minute cities. What's next? Thousands of people joined the march in Oxford this weekend as people came together from all across the UK to challenge the concept of low traffic neighborhoods and the rapidly accelerating 15 minute city agenda. The city was brought to gridlock as protesters moved from the rally in Broad Street where myself and other speakers spoke about what's happening uh, and then we marched through the city. In tonight's episode I'm going to share my own reflections on the march, the protest and explore what's next on the road to democracy and how we can start to tackle these specific issues. Now first of all I want to issue an apology for any of you who watched my live footage at the weekend. We had severe technical problems with our microphones and the connection was just woeful. So most of the footage, whilst you could probably see what was going on, unfortunately, a lot of the time we lost the sound or had incredibly poor sound. So apologies for that on Sunday. We are going to look at what different equipment we can use in the future. Um, so uh, again, apologies for the quality at the weekend. So uh, we'll do what we can to improve it going forward. Now, of course, looking at the recap from the press following the protest, we see the usual type of stories. However, I will add, prior to the protest, some of the build-up content in the national local press actually has been relatively, in the scheme of things, relatively balanced, actually signposting some of the issues, but they just can't resist. They cannot resist focusing on things that are slightly more fringe or describing things as conspiracy theorists. And the post-protest reports were no different. Of course, as we saw during the lockdown, the first thing you see in the headlines is the number of arrests there are at a protest. And they really struggled to actually paint a picture of a, a disruptive protest with this one because it really was quite the peaceful protest. There were five arrests, and most of which are no details specified, but most likely to have come from the counter-protests, which I will speak about in a moment, in a moment because there were uh, another group of people who were there to stand against the protesters, but uh, and perhaps they hadn't anticipated that there will be thousands of people descending on Oxford and their very small minority group uh, would be severely outnumbered. But there were agitators, there were agent provocateurs, there were people trying to disrupt the peaceful protest as always. Um, but it's no surprise that that makes the headlines, the arrests. And of course, we see the smears of far right or conspiracy theorists, fringe figures, you know, the, the reports often signpost you know, the, the obvious characters that will trigger people based upon their political biases and beliefs, um, the usual references to misinformation and conspiracy, all of these things, you know, come through in the reporting. It's, 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 and as I said, you wouldn't, you may have not heard it in, uh, in, in my recap um, session that I did on Saturday, but I said, just look for the headlines on Monday, look for the usual stories. All of these things are entirely predictable now. Um, but but unfortunately, the the the, the protest that the public rather has still not got used to this type of reporting. You know, they just take it as face value. It seems, but you know, for those of us involved, we know it's just part of the system. Uh, it's part of the liberal media um, fighting 
us back really in many ways and protecting the narratives because let's face it the media is owned by six major corporations who are all and that's local media too uh, are, are all part of the same system now you know there really there really is very little in the way of um counter narrative uh, in the media um and the response whenever i hear the term far right you know you have to realize just how far left the the left wing has become it's such that anything remotely to the right of the extreme left position seems like <laughs> right wing and anything central is now far right to those on the extreme left um and as a result what you find and what i tend to find when i go to protests like this is actually despite the media narratives around this being far right the majority of people i speak to and it is the majority um tell me how they have always been part of the left or the liberal classic liberal um and they've become disaffected essentially so you know to be smeared as far right is ludicrous because the majority of speakers organizers attendees are either politically homeless politically neutral or from the disaffected left that doesn't mean there aren't people from the right there aren't people from who are conservatives it doesn't mean there aren't people from the far right but <laughs> there are plenty of people from the far left driving this main narrative <laughs> so you know the dom the dominant population uh, at present in terms of our culture is being driven by far left groups so you know if you want to get into a battle of far right versus far left let's at least confront the reality <clears throat> but either way uh, let's take all of that off the table and rather than looking at the smears and the imbalances in political uh, context let's look at the issues let's look at what the problems are here um and and uh, examine this through the lens of the um problem at hand um uh, but before i go on to talk a bit more about that um like i said there were thousands of people there and this is this is this is this is an indication that we might be slowly coming away from the upside down although we did <laughs> i did speak to a number of protesters who who did believe the world is upside down at the minute um you know, when we went to any of the protests in London for the lockdowns, the papers would report hundreds of people, thousands of people, when there were tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands, even closing in on millions. Whereas actually the BBC said that there were several thousand people there and the Thames Valley Police estimated around 2,000 people involved in the main protest in March in Oxford this weekend. So at least we're getting a little bit of objective reporting uh, even if they can't resist the usual smears now the east oxford low traffic neighborhoods often abbreviated to ltn uh, were the mo the main motivation for many of the city and oxfordshire uh, residents to attend the march at the weekend others who traveled from further afield were not only supporting local protesters in oxford but actually expressing their concerns about the ongoing erosion of civil liberties democracy and human rights and the bigger picture of the kind of globalized nature of these kind of agendas and what it's begun what's really begun to struck me is that um Having studied the situation as regards to COVID and looking at the deeper social, economic, cultural and political issues that underpin those um, situations is, is a very stark reality that those of us in the world or those in the world who've really not looked at those issues, when you start talking about 
the nature of the kind of global agenda that's behind these things and the lockstep way in which these things manifest, it really is um, a step too far for people to be able to get their head around. And I've started to read between the lines in the press and not just in the press, but in the comments on some of the blogs that get written on some of the Twitter handles. And this idea that this is a globalist or global agenda is, is often a bridge too far. They just can't get their head around how this is some coordinated effort. And that's why it's often reduced to conspiracy. Um, but there is plenty of evidence that this very much is a global um, coordinated <laughs> effort. Here's, here's an article in the Bloomberg publication, which in the title, the headline says a global push for more 15 minute cities. That's in Bloomberg. It's not a fringe publication. It's not an alternative media, you know, conspiracy publication. It's in mainstream media saying a global push for more 15 minute cities to combat climate change. The non-profit group C40 Cities is partnering with a Danish firm to pilot walkable neighborhoods in five global cities. And the article goes on to talk about how this is a global agenda. And what's ironic, if I, uh, well, it's not ironic at all, <laughs> this little disclaimer here within the article, which you may not be able to see, but I'll read it out. Bloomberg Philanthropies is the philanthropic organization of Michael Bloomberg, the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the, the uh, who, who own Bloomberg News. And Michael Bloomberg is also the president of the board of the C40 Cities. <laughs> So here you are reading about the global agenda <laughs> within Bloomberg, a global publication about a global organization called C40 Cities, whom Michael Bloomberg is the president. <laughs> so it's, just, it's just laughable. So when, when those who can't see the link I tend to look for these kind of touch points, which just make it glaringly obvious. And I read, I, I haven't got it to show you, but there is a, there is a great paragraph in, in one of the things, which in a blog, which went on to talk about the conspiracy theorist. And line by line, I went through it and none of it is conspiracy. It's all, it, it's all documented fact. But, but the point is, it's deemed as conspiracy. When you start talking about, the World Economic Forum and Agenda 2030 and all these different things. It's a bridge too far for people. They can't see how it's all connected on the local level and they can't see beyond their own neighborhood to see that this is happening left, right and center across the world. Um, but uh, if you want, if you want to get, and I'll talk more about, you know, because part of this episode is, is to address not only what happened at, in Oxford this weekend, but to ask the question, where do we go from here? What's next? And that's not, not, not in terms of necessarily answering the question of what's next for 15-minute cities, where's the agenda going? I touched on that in my 25-minute uh, um, video last Thursday. If you haven't seen that, you'll better find that on my YouTube channel uh, and Facebook and so on, uh, and on Spotify, Apple, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, and we'll inevitably talk more about this because it, it, is, an, it is a global agenda. So let me, let me uh, show you a little bit more around this um, global picture because... Um, What's really critical, an organization that most of you probably have not come across yet, you know, I only discovered this myself in my research for last week's podcast and for the protests this weekend, but there's an organization called C40.org, 
uh, and it's about these um, 40 cities that have come together to address the climate crisis. But there is an enormous amount of centralization of power here. Um, Sadiq Khan is the chair, and he's obviously driving the ULES initiative and the 15-minute cities and the low-traffic neighborhoods in London. But when you start to look through the steering committee, the board of directors and their initiatives, you know, they're openly here when it, when it talks about what they do, influencing the global agenda uh, through um, diplomacy, advocacy, financing the green uh, transition, enabling the private sector. Again, it's all about public-private partnerships, building a movement, scaling up action. You know, this is a, uh, you know, if it is a conspiracy, it's an open conspiracy. There's the, it's, it's, all in, it's, it's all documented. So, you know, when people talk about conspiracy, they kind of imply that it's some secretive, you know, hidden dark rooms where the world's elite can conjure up their plans and inflict them upon us without our knowing. Well, that's simply not the case. You know, what, what we see here with all of these things is everything in, in open air, you know, so it's in that respect, it's certainly not a conspiracy. But what we can say with clarity is that it is a global agenda. So when 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 people smear this as conspiracy or reduce the fact down to that this isn't an, a, a coordinated series of actions, it quite evidently is you know it's 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 highly published we can't escape that fact so when people in the press start to use that as a smear it's really a fallacy it's really quite futile but i, I encourage you to look at the c40 cities because again there is much more to this than the 15 minute city agenda there's meatless cities carless cities you know this is all part of a, uh, a narrative shaped around um the climate um and of course, you know, there are real environmental issues. There are real issues with pollution. And um, unsurprisingly, you know, you know, the people I meet on the protest, when we talk about things like environment and pollution, everyone shares a common, um, um, not everyone, but most people share a common desire to see less pollution and to see cleaner cities and to, to um, improve the environment and the natural world. In fact, many people within this movement despite the fact that they're smeared as these kind of uh, conspiracy theorists, right-wing destroyers <laughs> of the planet, the majority of the people who attend, as I said, are of typically a classically liberal or left-leaning background. And even those who aren't from that type of political leaning, that the, the, they share a common desire to actually improve their local communities, to improve uh, and uh, their connection with nature. So it's it's really a false smear. Um, but as I've demonstrated there, just in a very, you know, they're cherry-picked. Yeah, you can say, I cherry-picked my resources, but they're they're the main resources. You know, you can't, you know I, haven't, I haven't gone to the edges. I haven't gone to the outside to get some kind of off-the-bell curve example to share with you. Um, you know, this is, this is the hard reality. Um, now... Let's get into some of the rationale for the protest and why people are concerned. Um, and it's simply this, is that the transport plans include proposals to block residential streets using bollards. And those of us who were on the march, we already saw some of those bollards. We saw some of the planters, that, the wooden planters that have been used, uh, all designed to stop vehicles cutting through the streets. Um, Oxford is setting up these six traffic filters, which is a simple way of saying 
uh, how they will track and monitor vehicle use um, within these key, six key zones using um, number plate recognition. And it's all designed to prevent travel by car and make walking, cycling, and public transport the preferred option, in their words, be it preferred on the basis that you will pay a fine <laughs> if you don't have a permit or a uh, exemption um, for entering those particular areas via a car. So it makes it sound lovely that you have this choice, whereas the practical the practicalities of it, you know, I don't need to go into the practicalities of it. Anyone that's tried doing anything meaningful on foot or on a bike, like your weekly shopping, <laughs> is, is quite frankly going to find it quite challenging. Now, here's where it gets a little bit more shocking. Um, Duncan Enright is the Oxfordshire County Council Travel Chief, and he said that the roadblocks stopping motorists from driving through Oxford city centre will divide the city into six 15-minute neighbourhoods and insisted that the controversial plan will go ahead whether people like it or not. Now, this is where alarm bells should ring, even if you are in full support of the proposals, because here's where it gets really alarming, is when you've got councillors with power saying that whether people like it or not, they're going to steamroller it ahead. You really have to question where is democracy. We've seen the erosion of democracy at the national and global level. We have to now be bearing witness to this at the local level. Now, again, as I said, if you even are in support of these schemes, think about it. It's very easy to ignore the erosion of democratic principles when the, when the tide is in your favor. But believe me, there will come a time when there is another issue that is not operating in your favor and you will want the democratic process. So if you fail to stand up for democracy, even when it's the issues that you stand for, then you fail to stand up for democracy full stop and you fail to stand up for democracy when the tide is going against your particular ideology. So when councillors are coming up and saying things like that, we're going to do it anyway, as evidenced by the fact that these consultations have just been ignored, uh, given evidence by the fact that the protests and uh, complaints of local residents have been ignored, we have to really realise that what we're really fighting here, and this was evident, this, this for me was my big takeaway from the weekend, is that we really must protect local democracy. And, and kudos to the Together Declaration and the team at Together who have really got that nailed into their central messaging around this campaign, because that's what it's really about. Um, because I will share, and as I have done in my previous broadcast, and as I had, uh, as I shared from stage in Oxford, is that actually, again, bringing it back to the actual intent, you know, vibrant communities, lots of great facilities nearby, yeah, fair enough. If you can create a, a local environment where you don't actually need to travel, well, I'm sure people will start making local choices because it's available to them. But don't take away their right to, to, to choose. Don't take away their right and their, their, their human right for freedom of movement. You know, this is about, I think, working democratically rather than just simply defeating the motion and, and seeking to destroy the idea, which may feel very tempting when you know, democracy is under attack in this way and our liberties and our rights are under attack. But rather, there will inevitably be streets where it does make sense to reduce the traffic. There will be 
streets where it does make sense potentially to pedestrianize so people can shop without having to you know or they can shop without having to worry about crossing the road and all these things but again you still have to be evidence-based based and pragmatic because there's plenty of evidence and this is where people need to get their heads around the um the paradoxes is that pedestrianization has actually reduced um in many areas footfall and business revenue so whilst it's made it easier for people to to walk around the streets it's actually had an adverse um, uh, impact on many pedestrianized shopping zones. So you have to look at things on balance. And I think that's the important message I take from this is number one, we have to be standing up for our democracy, but we also have to think about this pragmatically and, and start working with our council to say, look, you can't just shut down this road. You can't just put a barrier at the end of my road to say that traffic can't come through here. You need to consult with us. And if we decide as residents that, you know what, actually it makes sense to divert the traffic around these to these other main roads where it's actually going to be more efficient and reduce pollution in this re residential area, then, then we will give it the go-ahead. But what's happening here is the council are, offer, again, operating in this paternalistic way and micromanaging our lives. So I think part of the solution is not simply to downright reject the proposals, as tempting as that may be, but actually to look at them and say, well, here's where we have common ground. Here is where we sh have shared desires, and here is where we can work together to, to, to actually find the things that are democratic, that respect our rights and respect our freedoms, but help to obtain the end result that people are looking for, which is vibrant local communities where there is great facilities in the neighborhood and where there is cleaner air, because regardless of your position on climate change, and you could, you could, and it's important to actually have the debate on the climate change issue, no doubt. But, but, but if we get caught up in the weeds of the climate debate, you're actually missing the point that most people don't actually want to live in a polluted environment. You know, the, the climate debate is often drills down to whether the problems we're facing are man-made or, or due to nature or a combination of both and to what degree. But that then takes it away from the localized problem of, you know, actually, if we're breathing in dodgy air, it's not good for our health. But, but how do we tackle that? That's a question not for the centralized authorities and technocrats to impose upon us. It's for us to decide and determine collectively by examining the evidence, but not just the evidence, looking at the practicalities and not just the first order consequences of, of making a decision, but what the, what the other lasting ramifications will be upon other areas of society rather than just having these myopic views on either reducing COVID cases and ignoring everything else or reducing congestion and ignoring everything else or reducing pollution and ignoring everything else. We have to start looking at things holistically, systemically and democratically. Now, the council in Oxford say they're fighting back against gridlock traffic. This is how they always position it with strict rules on how, how often motorists can drive outside their neighborhood. And motorists will face fines if they leave their neighborhood too often. This is where it gets really dystopian. Now, under the new scheme, residents will be allowed to leave their zone a maximum of 100 days per year. But in order to even gain this, every resident, it's not, it's not that that's just imposed and you, off you go and it's not properly monitored. It's going to be strictly monitored. Every resident, in order to gain the ability to travel, will have to register their car details with the council, which will then track their movements via smart cameras around the city and monitor how many times they leave their specific district via number plate recognition cameras. 
Now, if that doesn't sound like an Orwellian dystopia to you, what does? But this, when you say this and you paint this picture, which is in their proposal, it's documented. It's all rejected and smeared as conspiracy. It's in the proposal. It's written down. <laughs> so, look, okay, granted, a proposal isn't a finished article. But the very fact that this is under consideration and the very fact that Oxford has already started labeling out these zones, because I took the time. I must remind myself, I've probably already been fined. <laughs> I don't need an escalating fine on this one. I must must check my details. But that's the reality. We had the same in Bristol. Like you travel around, you, you get fined, you pay the price. I'm sorry, I couldn't get across the city by simply walking. And I did plenty of walking. I did 20,000 steps this weekend <laughs> um, in, in marching around the city. So I, I've seen plenty on foot and I've seen how hard it is to get from one place to the other on foot and to do anything meaningful. Um, but the reality is it was eerie driving through Oxford. It, it had the hallmarks of the COVID restrictions in full sight, this time not with COVID, but instead with this low traffic um, scheme. Because everywhere in Oxford now, every road in Oxford is a 20 mile an hour limit. Every road. And as, as, as in order to make you aware of that, there are red, not, you know, the red traffic 20 mile an hour limit signs everywhere. There's an abundance of them. Now, the normal traffic signs, it's not some like crazy, you know, COVID design. But because there's so many of them, you're driving around and all you see is this sea of red signs saying 20 miles an hour. And everywhere I went, I thought, surely it's going to go into a 30 at some point. But no, it's all 20 miles an hour. Now, if I play devil's advocate, as I was driving around, the reality is people have already stopped driving. Some parts, some districts I was driving around in, there was no traffic. And it was quiet. And of course it's quiet. No cars, 20 miles an hour. So you can see there's that, you know, the residents must be thinking, oh, this is lovely. Low pollution, low traffic, low noise. Now we want those things, but how do we attain that without limiting people in such a way? And how do we avoid this safetyism and protectionism that, that underpin it? What's the democratic community driven way that we attain that and also when you get into these barriers and these blockades they've got the same black and yellow warning hazards on on the strip so it starts to feel very dystopian it's creepy it felt like handmaid's tale driving around oxford city this eerie quietness with no one around no one moving is that the dystopian reality you want I felt so, <laughs> I felt like relieved. I felt tension leaving my body when I returned here to Bournemouth, which is yet to embrace such schemes. But I'm going to talk about it in closing in a moment, how we start to tackle this and where we go from here. Because what's important is first, you've got to check in with your local area. Is this already in the works where you live? Because over 100 councils have already signed up to this in the UK. And, you know, I was talking to some American friends. They said it will never happen in the US. Take a look, friends. Google it. <laughs> Search on Brave, wherever you use. Look at it. It's happening. They're finding different ways to roll it out in different places. I know that the way the cities and towns are set up in America are very different to here. But watch this space. It's happening everywhere. So firstly, you need to be checking, is this happening in your area? And if it's not, then we need to start being preemptive. And again, this is about, I think, being pragmatic and saying, look, we understand that you're trying to achieve these goals. Many of these goals we share. How we go about that, though, needs to be a, a thoroughly democratic process in conjunction with the community. It needs to be a community-driven project, not a top-down, centrally-imposed global agenda that we're currently dealing with. 
Now, um, if you look at this from what I've described, it's essentially an entirely new social structure that's uh, with uh, ubiquitous surveillance that's being imposed you know the council is determining where you can go and how often and they're going to log and track and trace every time you leave your home essentially via these or potentially with these uh increased use of number number recognition uh vehicle uh number plate recognition cameras you know this is that this this does have real lasting ramifications and there's so many other elements and again i I'm always reticent now to bring these things in before someone just starts to smear the conspiracy. You, you overlay digital IDs, you overlay digital currencies, and all of a sudden it's not just a fine you're getting in the post, but they're collecting it at source through your payroll or for your local council tax or, you know, your benefits, however, you, or your pension. You know, so these things all start to become interconnected, which is why not only do we need to tackle each individual issue, but also look at them as a whole, as a system. And... The deeper you read into this proposal in Oxford, the clearer it becomes that the councillors were simply tired of trying to convince or persuade people to use public transport in line with their green goals. And instead of realising that bikes and buses aren't for everyone and there's certain things you can't do with those things and by walking around the town, these councillors have now chosen to force the issue with these surveillance protocols and fines and insisting that they're going to do it anyway. You know, so we have to stand up for democracy. You have to stand up for our rights and we have to stand up for our liberties. Um, now, there is plenty of feedback to the proposal which suggested that the public are not interested in the council's plans. The, uh, the, the, the responses that said the scheme would, would, would result in outright chaos, destroy communities and businesses. The beating heart and spirit of Oxford will be de um, decimated. This, these aren't small criticisms. Um, now, uh, when Oxford City Council and um, the wider um, Oxford Oxfordshire Council and the local press don't seem to understand or they seem incapable of comprehending, it seems, is that people do not want nor do they agree with being forced into such a dystopian future that globalist technocrats have concocted and devised essentially to control what residents can do because that's what is required in order to achieve their goals they need to control your behavior that's what they're doing it's this deeply authoritarian um, approach which removes our rights and freedoms and at no point have our political leaders been stopped by the media let alone the majority of the community and asked why they're inviting unelected international organizations and their plans into our communities and cities that's the question we need to be asking is why do these distant global organizations, centralized organizations, have such influence over our local communities? That's where we really need to be paying attention because, again, it's no conspiracy. If you want to call it a conspiracy, it's an open conspiracy. It's happening out in front of us. And as I mentioned, most people at the event I spoke to are all for localism. They're all for revitalizing our local communities. But these 15-minute cities, these low-traffic neighborhoods, they're simply not going to achieve that. It's simply going to restrict people's rights. Um, and what we're really watching develop here in front of our eyes is modern feudalism, a, a network of tiny city-states ruled over by all-powerful councils that act as manor lords telling the peasants where they can and cannot go and, and paying the price to leave the city. That's how things were in feudal times. And there's lots of articles and, and uh, observations now on this very concept, this idea of neo-feudalism. It's a real thing. Look it up. 
So far from revolutionizing the way we think about urban, uh, our, our urban life, um, we've essentially fueled this deep regression back into medieval living. We're even being forced to walk between towns and carry our goods by hand, where people are penalized for moving in and out of the city as proposed by these traffic filters that, that Oxford are bringing forward, where you can only travel by car in certain areas if you're exempt or have a permit. You know, they're supposed to reduce congestion and pollution, and, uh, but, but all it's doing is forcing people on alternate routes, spending more time in the car, doing more miles, and ultimately contributing more pollution to the city, just over a more disparate area. I spoke to a local hairdresser who said uh, it takes her longer to get, she's a mobile hairdresser, she travels around, takes her longer to get to her customers, she's got to use more petrol, do massive detours, and she says all of her customers that she's seeing are out on the road are, are significantly adversely affected by these local traffic schemes. She said that the traffic's just being forced onto other parts of the city, and uh, and when they're going to bring in these bus gates and these traffic filters, you won't be able to get from one part of the city to another. You'll have to go the long way around the ring roads. It just seems crazy. And, um, you know, uh, we have to really think about the roots of where this problem is coming from. You know, the, the, the resistance is local, but we've got to think global because, you know, when the United Nations floated its sustainability goals back in 2015, you know, no one paid attention to, uh, you know, the idea of sustainable cities and communities and what that could mean. In fact, many of us, when we looked at those goals, you know, again, it comes down to reasonable intent, but questionable means. You know, the fact that many of those goals have come with oppressive measures, again, if you look at, if you goal by goal, you look at it and the way they're being rolled out, Human rights, civil liberties, freedoms, they're all eroded under these goals. Um, so the climate situation, COVID, these are all accelerating these 15-minute cities and low-traffic neighborhoods because people's willingness to accept measures and restrictions in the form of uh, to protect your public health and well-being, you know, the bar has been altered. You know, there's a much lower bar now. People are willing to accept so much more. Um, but we've got to look to these central organizations. We've got to look to the UN. You've got to look to the C40. You've got to look to the WEF, yes. But the WEF has preceded by the Sustainable Development Goals. But, you know, the WEF are now in intrinsically wedded with the UN. They have a, you know, a, a clear public-private partnership. Um, so we have to be looking at these centralized organizations, but we have to be operating locally. So I want to conclude with what's next. Well, we have to bring back those terms. You know, the old... The old environmental movement always talked about thinking globally and acting locally. We need to start using that properly. And we need to think globally because we've got these global organizations driving these narratives and agendas unrestrained. But ultimately, we still have power on a local basis. You know, if we can overturn things in our local communities and we can actually come to more pragmatic um, solutions, then we can start to create a ripple effect that becomes a wave. So we've got to get organized because, let's face it, these global central organizations have a lot of power, influence, and money. And as such, they're able to roll these things out at speed. And so we need to be, we really need to be rallying people now to stand for the core principles of what our society represents: democracy, human rights, civil liberties. But yes, we do also need to embrace how we can improve our local communities, how we can reduce pollution, how we can reconnect with nature and how we can rebuild our connection with one another on a local basis. Because it's when we start to form connections on a local basis and we start to communicate in, in the public square, in the town square, in the public space, 
we're able to actually address these issues and actually address the limitations of these problems. And they're not just limitations, they're severe ramifications and they have lasting implications for our future and our culture, our rights and our liberties. So we've got to get organized, which is why, you know, we founded Elevate last year to start to build communities. We wanted to bring people together to start to address these challenges, but also to start thinking creatively about how we solve the root problems that many of these different initiatives are designed to solve. Because if we can build in liberty, rights, freedom, and all these other critical components of our culture into the future, then we can safeguard our freedoms, but we can also make the world a better place to live in. So if you haven't yet joined us at weareelevate.org, come and see us, come and join us, uh, join our community, join our movement. We're constantly exploring different ways that we can organize. And increasingly in 2023, our goal is to build a network, to build coalitions, to partner with different groups so that by being part of Elevate, you're able to help support multiple groups together to form solutions and tackle these key, key issues uh, together. So as always, I thank you for watching. The single action that you can take right now is to share this video. Share this video to help people understand what's happening because uh, it's largely happening under the radar. So share this video everywhere you can in Facebook groups, on Telegram, and any other private networks that you belong to, please share this video and the last one that I did uh, last week, which really gives an overview of where this has all come from. Join our community at weareelevate.org and share your ideas. Share your ideas about how we can not only tackle the impositions that we're facing, but actually how we tackle the root problems. You know, How do we create more vibrant communities? How do we reconnect locally? How do we actually tackle pollution in a way that preserves our rights and freedoms? These are big questions that we have to ask. But if, if we simply resist and fail to come up with solutions, then we're not going to get anywhere. So it's important that we consider how we resist, but also how we rebuild. Thanks again for tuning in. My name is Dan Aston Gregory. This is the Elevate Podcast. Today, I've been asking the question, what's next when it comes to 15-minute cities? I appreciate your viewership, and I'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.